This episode of Breaking Banks is brought to you by FIS. From local shops to global banks, FIS is evolving commerce and helping businesses and banks transform in the digital world. FIS moves $8.1 trillion annually, serves 90% of the world's largest private equity firms, 60% of the world's largest merchants, and 90% of the world's most innovative banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Last week, Brett Shamir Karkel of Silo Payments, aka the co-founder of Simple, Dara Tarkowski of the Tech on Reg podcast, and I debated walking like a bank, talking like a bank, just don't call yourself a bank. And, you know, Angela and Wade is two people who've been thinking about, you know, banking the future of banking for a very long time. I'd love each of your take. And Angela, let's start with you. What is the role of the bank in the future? I think the word bank is going to start to mean many, many different things. Like, is a bank where you keep your deposits? Is a bank where you get your payroll? Is a bank um, your type of investment account, right? Like, bank used to mean it was an all-in-one stop for everything that you did, financial services-wise. Um, the oft-used graphic of the Wells Fargo page and tons of different companies you know, attacking different parts of the vertical now means many people have six to 10 different apps that all used to be one on their phone. Um, and so gone are the days when you go to a bank and you get everything, you go to a variety of different apps. And that could mean something that starts with financial services, i.e. you go to Robinhood for trading, or it could be something that starts entirely differently. Specifically, uh, I drive for Lyft. I go there to find my jobs and how I'm going to earn money. And oh, by the way, they pay me into my bank account, but I tap on the Lyft icon and not the Wells Fargo to get the bank. Wait. For you, how do you envision the bank of the future? So I actually think that the bank of the future looks like the bank of the past. So we've had integrated payments, integrated lending, integrated receivables processing for Fortune 500 banks since a computer was invented. It just wasn't evenly distributed. So if you were a large Fortune 100 company and Citi was your commercial bank, there was all kinds of tightly coupled automation and integration that could happen. And tons of engineers at keeping Fortune 100 company happy. What I think is happening in this banking as a service or, or open banking is those capabilities that can't be snowflakes for each Fortune 100 company going down market. And now the new players, uh, the vertical SaaS companies are adding those features inside of their product offering to make that that automation of payments, automation of lending, even easier for companies. Well, and that's a really important point. If you think about the top kind of size of companies get a whole bunch of services provided to them, and especially when we talk about the small business segment, even the medium-sized business segment, today consumers are better served you know, with what they have than that middle swath of the segment. And if you think of the nature of our economy and the gig economy, thinking, Angela, of what you just said about Lyft, 
we have so many people now that are small businesses, either as a side hustle or as a main business that don't have that same thing, right? We have this whole creator economy now. And, we, and I think that's part of you know the, these entire communities built up around this and Move from its very beginning is a community-based organization. How do you see Move solving you know, problems based on community? Well, I think FinTech is different. So Angela brought up the, the decoupling of banking, but what we're seeing inside of the Move community is things like um, as antiquated as ACH being used in totally different ways. So your typical bank maybe does 40,000 ACHs a week. We have community members come in that need to do seven, eight million ACH transactions an hour for cutoff time. And so the performance and the needs and the kind of the surface area of use cases are drastically different than this typical, you know, kind of brick and mortar experience. And in that way, FinTech being so different requires a community. And I think that's what we've built that move is, is kind of the builders, the uh, outliers have really come into the community and said, hey, I've, I've got the specific edge case that I want to solve for the marketplace. How can I build that new technology? Because I can't go to the kind of uh, previous suppliers that that really target the bell curve. I need to to engage with a community like Move in order to figure out how to do something, you know, unique and, and frankly disruptive in the industry. I think the the biggest shift happening is it used to be me as a worker, I would I'd go to my place of employment, I'd get a, a W-2, said company would deposit my payroll in an entirely separate entity that was a bank, and I would use that for my financial services. Now, depending, there's almost a third of the economy that's classified as freelancers or gig workers, right? And so that's you know people that work for some of the DoorDash, Uber platforms. A lot that are um, you know independent agents of various sorts that you know work for themselves and are not W two workers. Um, for instance, you know if you uh, Gen Z twenty percent now, if you do the survey, want to be influencers and they're going to make their money off YouTube and TikTok and all sorts of other things. And so it doesn't make as much sense to have this decoupling of where I make my money and then where it is deposited. And so if you think, well, you couple those together, there's all these new platforms of where I can make money. Those platforms are going to need to add services like tax withholding, deposits, easy ways to get the money out. And that's what's driving the increased need for things like Move that offer you know, customizability, um, a lot of customization for all of these new use cases that are coming up. Yeah, we had AutoBooks on just a few months ago, and they had this shocking statistic. Do you know 81% of businesses in the U.S. don't have a single employee? Like, that was just astounding to me in terms of, like, the proliferation of that kind of business. And so, you know, wait, as we address this kind of mid-market, what's the challenge? So like, where did Move see the opportunity that you came in and said, hey, here's the problem that needs to be solved? So the biggest problem that we see is, is a lot of these use cases don't actually require a bank account, right? If we go back a decade, um, you know, the uh, Starbucks card came out and Starbucks wallet, and American banker had on the front page, you know, the world is ending, Starbucks wants to be a bank. And, and to me, that's analogous to like if Starbucks had autocomplete search inside of their app, that somebody would say, oh my goodness, Starbucks wants to be Google. 
You know, that's not the point. Starbucks just wanted a better user experience and they wanted to embed those financial constructs to keep the eyeballs inside of their platform, to make the payment experience totally transparent in the same way that, that companies like Lyft, Uber, and Airbnb have done. And, and so do they really want to be a bank? I don't think so. But do they really want to have the best user experience for their end users on their platform? Absolutely. And that doesn't mean download a QuickBooks export from their digital bank and upload it and reconcile it and act like that that's embedded finance. They actually want to move money. And so that's the marketplace that we see. And when I say uh, and agree with Angela that everybody wants to be a fintech, it's in the same way that everybody wants to have that better, more tightly coupled user experience where finance is a key feature, not product, but feature of that platform that they're utilizing. Angel, why don't we you know, talk a little bit about this? Every company is going to be a fintech. If we build on what Wade just said, it's not every fintech is going to be a fintech or every bank should become a fintech. We're also getting into, you know, Wade saying every type of company, anyone who conducts commerce becomes, you know, a fintech. Is that what you're seeing, you know, with all of the deals that you look at? Yeah, I'd say even if you don't yet conduct commerce, you should think about it. I think the, the point where I vehemently agree with Wade is that it's not one size fits all. What we're seeing is there's lots of marketplaces or sometimes vertical SaaS companies that are helping um, independent workers of all types manage their businesses. For instance, um, if you have a construction business or you're a general contractor or you're a hairdresser, you need things like booking, you need things like scheduling, and, and, and. And these platforms are now thinking, well, I provide lots of services to my customers who are these workers. Why would I not want to provide them more services? It's going to add a lot more value to them. It's going to probably keep them longer on my platform, higher retention, and I'm going to be able to monetize better. And the natural extension is some form of fintech, but you have to very much think through what fintech makes the most sense for my users. And in some cases, it'll be, well, they want accounts because they should get paid immediately. Uh, and in other cases, it'll be more, no, let's just help them move money faster, or they need some form of lending, maybe they need insurance. So there's lots of creative use cases that are coming into demand from a wide variety of customers. So if all of these companies, whether they're conducting commerce or not, it really, if I start to think of the technical challenges of this, you're now asking a bunch of you know, developers and product people who don't necessarily think of banking and financial services and fintech are going to need a whole new skill set. You know, Wade, you know, you've been swimming in the world of financial services for you know, two decades now. What are the technical challenges of, of, of picking that up where you know, if our product teams, our technical teams weren't previously oriented here, how do you begin to develop that acumen? What we're seeing is there's 28 million software engineers out there. So there's no possibility if everything becomes a FinTech that everyone becomes a Wade Arnold that has spent years inside of payments and understands the ins and outs of everything from ISO 8583 to Metro 2 formats for credit reporting to ACH processing. It's a feature. They just want to be able to move money. And what's the most simple way of you know, completing that task? I think in the same way that we're talking about these low-level payment primitives and, and the assumption that you would need to know those in order to move money 
is very much like search and saying, well, you need to go learn how term frequency inverse document frequency uh, works and how vector space models work in order for you to have autocomplete in your application. And that's just asinine. You're not going to go do that. They're fun projects if you're in computer science like me, but you really just want to use Elastic and autocomplete is now a, a simple feature in your product. In the same way, how on earth can all these programmers go out there and learn clean blocks and all of the acronyms of payment? I mean, we as software engineers love our acronyms, but then you walk over into uh, payments infrastructure and we got AML and BSA and CIP and KYC and KYB, and you haven't even touched any payment rail at that point. So we at Move are trying to elevate that abstraction and just make it so that it's very simple for Wade to move money to Angela. And however Angela wants to receive that money, whether that's over ACH or she wants push to debit or maybe in the future wants that via Bitcoin, it shouldn't matter. We just want the best user experience for both me, the sender, and Angela, the receiver. Which, you know, as these new skills are you know going to be picked up, that brings us to Move this fall, we'll be hosting the first of its kind, as far as I know, the developer first focus fintech underscore DevCon out in Denver, Colorado. And Angela, you're going to be, you know, one of the main stage speakers, excited you know, to hear what you have to say. Why is A16Z so excited about DevCon? Yeah, I think so. There's uh, to, to, to Wade's point, not everybody wants to read the 500 page PDF nacho file about um, ACH. Um, and shouldn't have to. And there's lots of strong, so who is DevCon for? There's lots of strong FinTech engineers and they're in a lot of Slack groups that all of us are in sharing different information. But I think as the complexity of use cases scales and as importantly as the number of companies that are looking to add FinTech scales, the number of very smart engineers who maybe haven't dealt with payment rails, haven't dealt with compliance, haven't dealt with all of these financial services specific things that yes, we can do a lot to abstract the complexity, but would benefit a ton from being part of a peer group that has spent a long time building in this space. So I'm excited I think it brings expert fintech engineers, designers, product people, lots of smart developers that are getting into the space either because they're interested in joining a fintech company or because they're working at a SaaS company, a marketplace, and they see the opportunity to add financial services. And then the last piece, which we haven't touched on, right, is the banks, the existing banks, as you would define it, you know, historically, are stepping up and being much more competitive in terms of needing to provide new services to their customers and thinking through, well, we can't build it all of ourselves. We probably need to partner with fintechs and get in front of what they're doing. And I think this conference could very much be for them too. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add on to that. I mean, the whole reason of building this, it's fintech DevCon uh, sponsored by Move. So this is not a Move conference. Uh, it's it's really us trying to build something that frankly, I always wanted. So, you know, why not build one? And that's that feeling you get when you go to a developer conference, you leave inspired, you feel motivated, you, you want to take on the world. And you also realize that these people that worked at the tech companies um, put on their pants one leg at a time, just like you and me. And that's the same type of excitement and feeling we want people to have leaving fintech devcon you know to be able to listen to tom adams the head of engineering at cash app 
talk through what it was like in order to scale that platform. And you know what? It wasn't easy. And he's going to be open, transparent, and authentic and share that experience with the team. And you just go through the list of speakers. All of them are not the typical banky conference speakers. Uh, most of them hopefully wouldn't even come to those banky conference uh, events because the BD and the salespeople would be at them. These are the real people behind the products that are changing the industry. And you get to actually hear why, how, uh, make them tick and be able to kind of network with them, with them in this intimate 500 people uh, experience and actually realize that, you know what, you can build something amazing too. Yeah, I actually put FinTech DevCon up on the list in the same way that I think for the incumbents especially that need to open their worldview, the senior executive team and their product people need to be going to South by Southwest to see what the future is going to look like. I think those same senior executives, product people and technical people need to be going to FinTech DevCon to really marry that up to say, and here's what the delivery of the future is going to look like, right? Like we have to get out of our bankery conferences. Yes, Money 2020 is going to be a hoot. We love Finnovate is a way of seeing, you know, the FinTechs, you know, that you can partner with and hopefully you avoid the FinTech petting zoo. But I feel like getting back to those basics, you know, the primitives, you know, that you talk about, I think is a really an essential way to have people rethink the architecture, not not just the technical architecture, but how we deliver these services. And Angela, as we wrap this up, I'd love for you to share a little bit more in the blog post you did announcing the investment in Move. You know, you talked about going from the vertical integration to the layer cake to the Legos. You know, bring us home talking a little bit more about how you see that playing out. Yeah, listen, just a recap. I think when we started financial services, it was um, you you had a choice of integrating with uh, you know older companies that have been around since the 60s that provided you know very good services for what they were meant to be if you were trying to build something new and nimble it would take you a very long time to sign the contracts do the integrations probably build a bunch of custom software around it to make it work for your use case and so along came what is now a very broad category of banking as a service a lot which would do that layer integration you and provide this value to a lot of companies of, hey, we've done all of this for you. We've integrated this stack. We've built some custom layers around it. And this is going to be a much more flexible, speedier way to get your service going. Fast forward to today, there's an exploding number of customers that need to add financial services. And that can be accounts, but to Wade's point, that can be moving money in any variety of ways that's going to require more customizability, more extensibility, um, different ways of putting that together. And so you're just going to need more flexible building blocks, which requires you to get right down to the network level, which is exactly what Move has done, starting with its open source libraries. And then for those that need to go to that level, they can use the open source libraries. For those that would like it slightly more packaged, Move will also do that for them. Fantastic. Well, anyone who wants to hear Angela expound more on this and drop more wisdom and see Wade's beard in person, trust me, it is worth the trip. We have FinTech DevCon hosted by Move in Denver coming up uh, this September. More information coming out on that as we head into break. Since we focus on how banking and finance are transforming, I'd like to talk to you about three letters. F. I S. 
From local shops to global banks, FIS is evolving commerce and helping businesses and banks transform in a digital world. FIS moves $8.1 trillion annually. It serves over 90% of the world's largest private equity firms, 60% of the world's largest merchants, and 90% of the world's most innovative banks. They have the unmatched expertise needed to advance your business. Want to find out more? Head to fisglobal.com slash realnet. That's F-I-S-G-L-O-B-A-L dot com slash realnet. So, Matt, I don't know if you remember, I, one of the last times you were on the show, at least with me, we were recording an episode called Workhorses versus Unicorns. And you, of course, were running late on your way to LaGuardia. So we kicked off the show with you on the phone on a Manhattan street corner waiting for an Uber. Do you remember that? Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Back when we could actually travel and do those things and Manhattan was busy and honking. And just uh, a yeah. little little bit has changed since then. Um, and we're going to get into that in a second. But a little bit has also changed since you started investing. And I'd like to like get in the Wayback Machine for a second. What was your first fintech deal? Because I guarantee knowing you back then, fintech wasn't a thing yet, right? And so you had a thesis around this emerging space. I'd love to hear what that was. Well, the the prequel really was when I was in bank capital in the 90s, we bought TRW credit uh, and turned it into Experian. This is in 1996. So that wasn't any kind of venture deal. Like we bought a whole business and... um, but it was a tremendous success. And really as a 20, whatever, three-year-old got my attention about what was possible. So I think that was in my mind when I started my own firm in 2000 and was thinking about what I wanted to specialize in. The first proper FinTech deal I did was a seed stage B2B payments company called Blue Tarp out of Portland, Maine. In late 99, two brothers, Brian and Michael Rigney, and they were looking at Wex and Fleetcore. Those are two companies that are still more obscure than they should be. Big yep. companies at the time were primarily fuel card businesses. So if you had a fleet um, and they were buying, you know, fuel and other things for on the road truckers, they would use one of these two cards. And these these Rigney brothers thought in building materials there should be something similar. If you were a contractor, you should have a proprietary closed loop card for buying building materials, which would get the lumber dealers and all the other retailers out of the trade credit business um, and move all that volume from trade credit and paper checks onto a classic kind of B2B payments architecture. That was their idea. And I wrote the first, I think, quarter million dollar check, you know, 22 years ago. I mean, it's crazy to think in some sense, it was one of the first of the you know, challenger bank type products in terms of pick a demo that has a unique set of needs and go build a product particularly tailored to that. Of course, it being run on prepaid rails as opposed to the modern banking as a service that we talk about today, which in and of itself has evolved so much. And Koki is someone, you know, I think... Lasagna is the first, at least that I know, banking as a service consultancy. Um, and I think banking as a service gets thrown around so often, everyone nods their head and says, oh, I know exactly what that means. 
means, but there's so many, well, building on lasagna, so many flavors, if you will, of banking as a service. Can you give us kind of your perspective of, you know, when we throw banking as a service about, you know, what does that really mean? You know, I don't think anyone really knows, <laughs> but here's the way I think about it. Um, banking as a service is really almost no different than the way banks ran before. It's just a different kind of delivery. So it's about layering services, connecting everything into what we used to call, remember it was really cute, like five years ago to talk about the bank in the box. It's kind of that, but a little bit better. Um, but really what it's about is partnerships. And that's really at the core of what this is. Um, so if you think about kind of all the things that have to come together for a bank to actually run. Imagine they just were already together and your life wasn't a pile of garbage. I think that's the goal. Okay. Pile of garbage. <laughs> and so Matt, I mean, I love the blog series you've written around, you know, FinTech is the fourth platform. Is that really the extension of what Koki just said, right? Like the FinTech taking banking into other products. That's why it's like the, the fourth platform. Yeah, I mean, I want to. Uh, I have a follow up for Koki. Let me answer your question, though. The fourth platform idea, this whole idea of embedded financial services, was, you know, a metaphor. Like when um, in the '90s, when people were building internet companies, they called them internet companies, you know, and basically it was like we're going to do a catalog and it's going to be on the internet and or we're going to do you know a newspaper on the internet or a magazine and it was all very goofy and overt um and then over time you had you know facebook and like real internet companies that that use the internet as an ingredient but they were their own thing um and i think fintech is the same thing like i think we're going to look back and talk about fintech companies is going to seem really quaint because it's just an ingredient in an, hopefully another more successful, more durable business model. And so fintech companies that all they do is try to sell you a bank account are going to go the way of banks, which is to say a very problematic path. Like I think people and businesses are going to enjoy and experience and buy financial services from software companies, full stop. So that's the idea of the fourth platform that if you're a founder, and you're sort of composing a business, you of course would use the internet. You of course would use uh, the sort of SaaS toolkit of Amazon Web Services, et cetera. This idea that compute and storage are available to you as utilities. You would use mobile as an ingredient. And then fourth, you'll use FinTech. You'll incorporate payments or lending or insurance or all of it. So that's the theory. I think what it leads to is exactly what Koki's on, which is like, okay, yeah, but how? That's like all very well and good in a PowerPoint presentation by some non-operating, you know, VC. Easy for you to say, but like, seems hard to like yeah. let my users open up bank accounts or whatever it is. And I think it is hard. Um, so Koki, as you think about like banking as a service, which I associate with basically a DDA. Mm -hmm. But like, help me move, move me off of that. Cause we've got half a dozen or more companies that I view as like enablers. Like if you yeah. want to move money or if you want to do point of sale lending, or if you want to do become a payfac, do you view all of that as banking as a service and the, and the sort of DDA, the synapse and Sinterra as just one sleeve, or do you view unit and bond and Sinterra and synapse as banking as a service? So I kind of, that's a great question, actually. Um, I kind of think of them 
I, I know that it's easy to get locked into the like the DDA, right? Like that this is what banking as a service does. Um, I just think we have to remember the natural progression of growing a bank. So if you think about any bank, the first thing they launch is, is either prepaid or DDA. Um, and the same thing happened when we started building these companies like, you know, units and terrorists and apps, et cetera. Uh, the first thing they did was, this is how you launch a DDA. Uh, I think they're going to move down the product stack. Um, so what I kind of think is interesting is that we're looking at an evolution. So, you know, if you have the bank account, you have the DDA, what's next? For some people, it'll be going into credit. For some people, it'll be going into like point of sale lending, et cetera, um, but the, or brokerage even. Like, but I still think that's kind of all encompassing. I think we could have like lending as a service and brokerage as a service, but ultimately, it's banking. That's all part of a banking experience. Um, I, I think it's a little nuanced and a little unnecessary to kind of split it off, but we always unbundle before we rebundle, right? Like that's what we do in tech historically. Um, so yeah, we look at, I think we'll see a lot of these services, a lot of these offerings, a lot of these products fold into each other over time, but these companies are all in their infancy. Um, we don't know yet what it looks like. That's just my take. That's my guess. <laughs> well, and maybe in the rebundling, though, what I'm hoping, though, you know, if we look at the existing fintech players, so many of them are just better digital versions and mobile versions, you know, back to your, you know, catalog, right? Like, yeah, they digitized the bank account. But mm -hmm. I feel like we're on the verge of something now, where we're not just going to rebundle, we're going to recombine and change you know, the fundamental DNA that it might not be a natural progression, like Koki said, of, you start with the DDA and then you add a something and a something and a something. And the next thing you know, I'm a better digital bank, but I provide all of those services. What are you seeing in terms of the companies coming to you that are pushing that boundary? Well, you know, I've always, and, and maybe this is a, a weakness, but I, I really like founders who start more with the problem. Uh, and it, I find it's very common. Like the worst example of this, of course, Jason, you and I both lived through this was, the blockchain era five or six years ago, where you'd, yeah. you'd have somebody come in and be like, I'm a blockchain company. And, and then you'd be like 10 minutes in before they'd get to like what the customer need is or whatever. Yeah. And I think there is, we're, we're still going through that immature phase as it relates to broadly defined banking as a service where people are, you know, spinning a wheel and it comes up demographic or industry and then spinning a wheel and it comes up banking and they're saying, well, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to be a bank for, you know, um, plumbers or, or I'm going to be a, you know, bank for people who live in the Southeast. Uh, and it's just sort of nonsense, right? I mean, it's just an inauthentic instinct um, from my perspective, if you want to, you know, start a company, like I think there should be a bank for plumbers. It may be a sleeve of a, you know, plumbing software company or a broader contractor software company but I, I'm convinced, and Frank Rotman, I think, has done the best thinking here, that vertically specific banking offerings can create a lot of value. But they will rarely you know, start life in the same way that Bank Simple did, which is just yelling, I'm a bank account. Um, it'll be banking functionality as part of something much more interesting. Yeah. Koki, you want to respond to that? I would like to radically disagree. <laughs> yes. Take me to the gloves come off. No, I I I actually somewhat agree. Um, which is a rarity for me on these things, by the way, Matt. I know this is our first time doing this together. 
Um, no, I, I think, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of value to be found in kind of identity-based um, financial services. So, you know, daylight for the LGBTQ community, you have, you know, a bank for plumbers. There's a lot of need there. There's a lot of problem there. And if you start at the core of the problem, then that's how you work your way out. Everybody knows that that's how you build the business, right? Um, I really do think though, ultimately uh, going back to kind of Matt's piece on the fourth platform, everyone loves to scream, everything is FinTech. Uh, my kind of end game is that nothing is FinTech. Uh, in that everyone does what they do. They just, FinTech is almost a tool that's built into it. So while today we'll have the bank for plumbers in 10 years or so, we'll have like, you know, a plumbers association offers, you know, deals and on supplies, et cetera, whatever, through the bank account that they produce. Um, so while I radically don't agree, I also radically agree. Well, let me, me radically disagree <laughs> and agree with you simultaneously, which is to say, should that even be a bank account though? Like is the future of embedded financial services is whatever that need is that the plumber has, does that reside within an account still? Or does it yeah. reside within the actions, you know, that I'm, you know, I'm taking that they become micro financial services that are embedded into lots of little things rather than rebundled as a bank account? Yeah, I think until we have a pretty frank conversation with the regulator, we're kind of stuck within the terms that they've given us, right? So as much as I think like a lot of things would function a whole lot better as a wallet, uh, that doesn't really work yet. And as much as I think that like sometimes you don't need the full suite, that doesn't really work yet either. Um, and it, it's kind of tricky because it's like, okay, you need the account to do the lending, but the lending's the thing that makes you money, but you have to scale up the account so that people will take your lending. Um, and it's it's kind of this progression that we've almost built into the very fabric of American financial services, right? Like every little thing is a building block on each other. And until you have a pretty long conversation with the regulator, like let us think without the confines of the existing structures, um, we don't really have a ton of options. Uh, because of the nature of a bank partner relationship, et cetera. That in the fourth, you go ahead, agree or disagree with that. I just think many of the, I like the disagreements we're having are interesting. And I don't want to soften the edge of them, but it, many of them can be resolved just by introducing the element of time. Yeah. Like in, in the first instance, you need this stuff to be the regulatorily approved account structures that all go by these initials. And, and so that's why you we're doing it that way, but it's dumb and we will laugh about it. And I don't know if it's five or 10 years, but some time frame that we'll all be still be, you know, doing this work. So I do think the concept of wallets, which has no meaning, I mean, it's like semantically neutral, but I think it is an interesting concept. Mickey Malk is very smart about this and just thinking about the explosion of, Places where notionally consumers think they have value stored, whether they do or they don't, you know, and then notionally know that they can spend it, move it, invest it or do whatever. And, and when you layer in then open banking, which is in quite full flower in the UK, it's not perfect, but it's yeah. aggressive. And you roll that forward. And so you take these concepts of wallets and open banking. And, and I think we're pretty close to like, you can keep your DDA. But as it relates to like all the information in your transactional 
activity, which is the underpinning the lending case that, that you refer to, and all sorts of control around pushing and pulling money, which again, also underpins lending from a servicing perspective. I think now, I don't know that people want 35 wallets, but if they're less overt, less of a like, I have a, you know, a wallet and rather just again, in the course of my ordinary activities, I'm pooling and flowing money. Um, that does to me feel like the future. And the question is sort of when. Well, and I that's where I was headed. I think it becomes embedded wallets, right? I don't think of it as a traditional wallet. Like I download it and it exists and it sits over here, but like, in the same way that would you say, you know, maybe the analogy is money I have sitting in Starbucks or with Amazon is, you know, in a wallet of sorts, right? I'm storing value and conducting transactions. And now, you know, especially with Amazon, I can even use Amazon to pay at other sites to check out and things like that, right? It, it's it's a wallet without me ever having to say, oh, I'm going to go get another wallet, you know, because I need another half dozen of those on my phone. That is exactly how I think about it. And, and then even like the question of stored value, like in my case, I don't keep money in PayPal. I mean, there, there are clearly people who do keep money with Venmo or PayPal. I use it as what sort of wallet as identity mm. to make it more convenient to me to make purchases. Um, but if, if just theoretically PayPal had hundred percent market share of my purchases, without a single dollar kept at PayPal, they would still be accomplishing their objective, you know, 95% of their objectives. They would know everything about me. They would have full access in effect to my, you know, P&L. Um, they would get all the payments revenue associated with it and all they would be missing is the float, which we live in a world where that's not valuable right now. It um, doesn't seem to be roaring back. Uh, so I think these purely transactional account structures that are not perceived by consumers or business users as wallets uh, are, are where this is all headed and they won't be DDAs per se. Yeah, and I think that's important, right? Like not to not to throw back here, but I actually own a physical wallet. Um, no. So vintage. Uh, I was just trying to be hip. I'm trying to fit in, you know? Um, it has you're saying we're like, old and so you needed like an old style like Kramer wallet. Is is that where you're headed with this? Cody? I mean, I'm not saying it. It might have been implied. Um, <laughs> I So I have this wallet, beautiful wallet. My fiance got it for me for Christmas and then he watched me destroy it with the 30 cards I put into it. Yeah. I don't need 30 cards. I'm one gal. I got nowhere to buy. I don't have that much money. I don't have that much money for 30 cards. Um <laughs> Which is always my my never ending joke in fintech because I don't have enough money for the amount of cards I have. Um, but yes, this is like it's the the fluidity of it. I think is a consistent consumer problem, right? Like I have money, I've stored value from everything like Honey and Rakuten on my browser that gives me cash back on purchases. That's just sitting. I have stored value in points. I've stored value across. Uh, minutia of accounts, like a, a ridiculous amount of accounts. Um, there's there's so much untapped value that the consumer actually has to actively seek. Um, and that fluidity doesn't exist yet. Like the fact that the fact that I I am one of the I know I'm a rarity, but I'm not a rarity in fintech, which I appreciate, that I optimize the hell out of my credit cards. Why isn't that just done for me? Yes. Like, why is it that I have to go on Amex, add my deals, and then pay with my Amex? Well, better yet, how about Extra you give staff. me 
how about you give me better deals? Not once have I looked at these deals that Amex has picked for me and said, oh, Amex really knows me and gave me something I really oh, no. care about. I wrote an article a while ago that I still get messages about. And I was like, why does Chase keep giving me 10% off at Olive Garden? I've never <laughs> been to Olive Garden. <laughs> I was like, you need to know, I, like, look at my transactions, babe. You should know me. It's like, where's my, where's my 20% at Sephora? Like, where's like, where's the cash back from? Like, I don't know, something I'd actually use. Like why you can't give me something to West Elm. Like, what are we doing here? Are you hating on breadsticks? It's it's the hill I'm going to die on today. Yes. (laughs) Yes, I am. I'm just like, I, I live in New York City. When would I have You're gone classy. to Olive Garden? Classy. It's coming through. I get it. I, <laughs> well, I'm I mean, a sophisticated Matt, la- young woman. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, you'll laugh at this. In the Perk Street days, when we really got good at our offers and our understanding, without fail, our number one performing, given who our demo were predominantly suburban families, and many of them that had been dinks, the double income, no kids, to one was staying home diapers we crushed it on diapers like we could have rebranded perk street as like the diaper company in terms of who we served i mean there's so many if i go back to the beginning of chime you know the the sound was meant to be an offer you were supposed to hear a chime when there was an offer the whole thing was like an offers platform for that suburban demographic and they did all these merchant funded rewards the i mean jason you would have you would have had uh Somewhere between uh, nostalgia and PTSD, if you oh, heard. No, no, no. That. Chris went a step further, and he actually like did the teardown of like what he thought we did right and wrong, and his seed deck, and I'd, he made me laugh. He made me cry. It was great. And then Marquetta, I mean, they bit their build their own issuing platform because they needed it for Jason and Omri's first thing, which was you could go to like a supermarket and have this virtual closed loop wallet this multi-wallet cursing strategy where you could like commit a hundred dollars and get discounts if you committed in advance and all that stuff. And it was like, you know, these things don't work until they do. I mean, Marketo was lucky that didn't work at all, but they built such great tech to power that super complicated thing that they became the best tech in the market. So I don't know. I mean, these things, you know, it, the hard part about my business and, and, and you'll all experience this and Jason, you have, is that like the fact that something hasn't worked historically has very little bearing on whether it's likely to work in a new time frame with a different cast of characters and, and all that stuff. It'd be easy to, I don't think I would do a single deal if I just went by the history of how similar endeavors had fared in the past, because there's so many dead bodies on the side of the road in all these lands. Yeah, and that's part of what makes it hard, right, is understanding the context of what factors contributed to failure then that may have changed now. Now, one of the things that I worry about is when we look at banking as a service, and you hinted at this, Matt, when you commented about PayPal, is their business models are dependent on interchange, the transaction fee associated with it. I mean, Koki, how many of these do you look at that don't have the business model is interchange? Uh, Zero. And I find that so offensive. Uh, I think one of the things that really needs to be worked out, um, the banking as a service players, the credit, the loans, all the as a service players is the pricing is a little bit complicated. Um, When I buy something, I don't want to have to ask my lawyer, what the heck is this? You know, 
Um, so yeah, I think the pricing is really complicated and the interchange split. It's like very few founders, very few founders have a really good idea of what that interchange split should look like. And it's a question I get almost every day. I'll get a message or a text or a Slack or whatever it is, just being like, um, what should I want? And that's inherently a problem. If your business model runs entirely on one thing and you, there's no resource for founders to know what they should want, then you have, you have a problem. Like that is a problem that needs to be solved. So um, whoever simplifies pricing, here's some free advice for you. You're going to win. Well, and, but what happens in a world where, you know, slowly the forces of change will come to interchange, right? And it is a friction that at some point does need to go away or at least diminishes dramatically. You know, what is the, the oil that makes the banking as a service model continue to work? I wonder if it's a revenue we haven't thought of yet. I also like, I like to point out every time I do something like this or talk to anyone, I'm like, FinTech's still a baby. We don't know what she's doing yet. She was just born. Uh, so it's going to take a little bit of market maturity, honestly, to figure out like what things should cost, how things should work, what these revenue streams actually look like. Is there something baked in that could be a subscription instead of relying on a fluctuating interchange? Is there a way to make interchange better? Um, is there a way to supersede it? Like we just haven't really answered those questions yet. Matt, 15 years in, at least, you know, fintech still a baby? Yeah, I think it was negative 12 years old when I started, and now it's three years old. So I, I, I agree with Koki, I think. Uh, and I also agree these economics, you know, interchange has been far more durable than I would have guessed at any time along the way, even in lanes like commercial payments, where it's really not not obvious, frankly, that yep. two known counterparties should generate 260 basis points of, of interchange when they transact, but it's really sticky, like like standards tend to be. So I'm not here to predict it's like imminent demise. Um, but I do think particularly when you get in the weeds and you're like, okay, wait, Durban, they're like wait, only some banks. And I mean, that again, that too has been you no know, 11, 12 years, but it's weird doesn't and how long will we even have Durban? you know like the regulators are catching on <laughs> yeah it's uh it, it it feels like an artifact you know not saying you would design from a first principles basis so i think uh i think lending you know if you look at where most of the profits of the financial system, the banking system come from, it's net interest margin. That's the bulk of it. Yep. Um, and, and yes, there are always fees, but fees have been systematically dropping down. Fees were generally like a, a product of leverage and opacity. The banks would like extract fees um, wherever they could. This was one of the Perk Street um, insights was that just like fewer or no fees is a huge customer benefit. And so I don't think that genie is getting put back in the bottle. So I think we're left with net interest margin. Can you collect cheap or free deposits and use them? Can you find ways to make privileged, high quality loans, either through underwriting or servicing or a tight customer relationships? And can you have therefore like a really widespread lending business? Um, I think that's, you know, maybe it's 30 years before we have to rely on that, but after interchange, you know, that'll still be there. Well, or 
is it the once it's embedded into something else do we find that whatever it's embedded in doesn't need to charge that fee because it's enabling them to sell more stuff or there's other value being created or friction taken out that you know now covers that because i'm going to agree with koki that we're we might be 15 years in or you know made it to the you know 3 years old now matt but we're still kind of acting out the old game like i think we're about to see fintech 2.0 which is not just the rebundling, but the recombination piece of this. And in no small part because, you know, the host of the show, um, you know, Move uh, is, is the sponsor of this idea of microservices and this idea of being able to embed into other things is what's going to drive that forward. Yeah. I, just as a note, my favorite words are, I agree with Koki, um, and now you've both said them, so I'll send you flowers. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Yeah, I think Thank you the- very much. The, the the move and I'm by the way I'm you know a seed investor and in, in move so I'm, totally I'm also a seed investor. We'll make sure the disclosures. Wait, we're not regulated. We don't have to disclose. Right. I'm not. I'm not, and Wade owes me one for that. So um, that seems like a him problem. That's a him problem. Um, so I mean, I'm biased, but I but I do think that this if you believe at all in this idea of fintech as a building block for your business, then logically you'd want kind of developer first toolkits so that it would be composable. And I think, you know, Wade is as sophisticated as they get in fintech and technology. And that was his idea going back, you know, three, four years. And so it makes perfect sense to me. And I think the the energy around it doesn't, doesn't surprise me. Um, but I do think there's lots of facets of this and lots of ways to win, um, at least at this point where we're still in the early innings and the number and intensity of customers is just so much greater than that of vendors. There's just yes. so much opportunity to serve people. Well, we are at time, but I want to ask you each one last question. FinTech, capital F or lowercase F, and is the T capitalized or not? The the debate resurfaced once again this weekend on Twitter, and I, I love that the, this is where we come back to. Yeah, it's all lowercase, actually. Um, and that's an aesthetic choice that I will maintain until I die. Thank you very much. I get to end on a high note by saying I agree with Koki, which I, I agree with Koki. That's that. my favorite. <laughs> and that's a wrap. Thank you guys for joining today. <laughs> Thanks so much. Great to be here, Jason. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.